Happy Monday, everybody. How's it going? It's going hey. well. Happy Monday. <laughs> Welcome, Happy Cody Monday. and Will. Thanks for joining yeah, the good show to see today. you guys. It's cool. Did you guys have a good weekend? Yeah, it was good. It was a lot of traveling. We were actually in New York last week for a conference. Oh, oh, that's funny. Okay, well, next time you're there, I'll have to try to connect with you guys. Yeah, what conference was I, it? Oh, it was, um, it was like kind of a boutique thing on data and AI. It was kind of like a more local thing where yeah. we had connection. Mm. Data plus AI forum, I think it was called. Yeah, something yeah, like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you, really all, cool. you all know a bit about that space, so. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's very fitting, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, let's hop into it. For people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Yeah, totally, totally. So I'm Cody Coleman. I'm a co-founder of Coactive alongside Will, and um, I serve as the CEO. My background is I've been working in the at the intersection of data, systems, and AI, for over the past like 10 years from like doing research at MIT and Stanford and Harvard to working at places like Google, Meta and Pinterest. Uh, so again, my name is Will. So Cody and I met uh, back at MIT. Uh, following that, I had a lot of different research positions at different places. Uh, uh, and, and similarly, then my PhD really around a lot of things. One of the core uh, tenets was really like data. Uh, particularly within the context of uh, IoT and within the context of neomorphic computing. Uh, and yeah, following that, I uh, worked at eBay as a data scientist and then, you know, linked up with Cody and decided to start Coactive. Why not? <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. I think we met at the uh, the first MLOps uh, meetup yeah. in San Francisco like a couple of years ago back. I think it was like the first um, meetup after the pandemic. So that was kind it was of kind a, of during the pandemic, well, wasn't it? I mean, it was kind of under I guess it was still going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it never happened, Matt. Um, just kidding. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that was that was interesting because it was, uh, uh, I think, the first time the, uh, the tech community had gotten back together, the, uh, the, the AI community. So it was really cool to run to people like you your name came up a lot cody because it was like yeah, that's cool he's like ml perf guy and he's like really really smart and you know in a room full of people like that oh, i was like okay he must be uh he must be pretty cool so, <laughs> so yeah that was yeah good intro, well, that's, so. that's awesome flattering it but uh yeah i mean it's been it's so nice actually thinking about that ml Ots event like that was like one of the first ones post pandemic as things are like or not post pandemic but um, when it was like finally okay to like go and meet up with people and things like that. And um, I don't know, it was such a like magical event actually seeing people in person, getting to meet you, Joe, mm -hmm. and like Demetrios and, and stuff like that. And um, I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm old fashioned, but I really miss those like in-person events where you get to talk to yeah. folks like, like that, like the conference that we were at last week and like all the events that are, that are kind of scheduled over the next few months. Yeah, that's been mm -hmm. refreshing after was the pandemic, and then just getting to meet people again in person and just getting to really connect. Uh, you know, the Zoom is cool, and like you know, it facilitates like really awesome things like this. But I don't know, this is it's just like something special about meeting people in person and just you know just hanging out with them and just chatting. It's fun. Yeah, I feel like it's still really good for work, to be quite frank. I mean, getting a PhD as well, like just having those conversations in person with people in your program or going to a conference, it just makes such a big difference in terms of starting yeah. collaborations, starting work together. Zoom is great, but it just doesn't, I, I don't know, we're still humans that like to be in the same physical space. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Matt, I can't tell you how many times someone like saved me a week worth of work because I was talking about about something in the in like, the, the room and someone was like no 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 don't do that i tried that like a year ago like that doesn't work and they're like oh okay cool like, i got i don't have to do that now for the next few weeks yeah yeah and it's just hard to have those kind of moments like when you're not in person yeah i mean we're biased we're in person right now in our office in san jose so i'd like uh even True. though it's like kind of crazy with remote work we were like all right as we're starting coactive we want to be in person especially for the earlier days it's so nice as you're just like exchanging ideas and things like that mm-hmm there's something to be said for that. I mean, you know, in-person stuff. I mean, I literally just took a plane to, to France to give a talk, like an hour talk in person, right? Like that's, you know, the efficient part of me is like, oh, you could just do this on a Zoom call, but then it meet, you know, miss out on a lot of the serendipities. It's like when you went to that conference in New York last week, right? Like that's, you know, just a yeah. really cool thing. And there's also the happy over there last week. Uh, Ethan Aaron's wasn't that last week, Matt? The, uh, uh, that week was actually before. so that was two weeks ago. And then last week was two weeks ago. NYC, which that's uh, right. Yeah, okay. Runs, and then, yeah, 
had a cool kind of meetup last night with uh, with Ethan Aaron and uh, Jess Haberman and Chris Tab and Holland Nelson. Sick. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is cool. I mean, we, we actually hashed out all kinds of ideas about a book we're working on and like got lots of very um, very constructive feedback. Let's say. And, yeah, it's it's just different meeting people over dinner or over coffee. It really is. What, what do you guys think about the future of remote work? Because I think that's a big question for the tech majors like Amazon and Google or, that are trying to bring people back to the office. But what about for startups? Like, is that are they going to start bringing people back to the office because they they do want people to be in person to interact, or, or what's going to happen? Yeah, so super great question, Matt. Um, again, I'm biased in this, but my perspective is that. I think it, it it somewhat depends on so one I don't think that there's like one size or like one size fits all. I think um, if you're doing like maybe a consulting startup or something like that, then maybe it makes sense to be remote and your consultant because you're like individually working on things. But I think for like product based startups like Coactive, um, being in person is just super like special and nice for being able to have that quick exchange of ideas to be able to see kind of across the company really like quickly, you know, like we can like mm -hmm. go and talk to someone that's like someone hears something from sales, like a sales call, they can immediately kind of give the feedback to the rest of the team and just like the fact of like broadcasting and stuff like that. Um, plus just building trust, you know, I think there's something about like actually like grabbing coffee, like having a meal with people and all those little things where like um, when you're remote, I think it can be a little bit hard where, um, some people you'll only interact with when you have a problem, you know, like mm. uh, I feel probably bad for anyone that's in HR. Like they're probably only getting pained when there's like some issue or something like that. Whereas like in person, like you actually get to interact with a person outside of problems at lunch and stuff like that and realize that they're like, you know, just a normal human being like everyone else. And I think, especially as you're trying to move fast and, and things like that, there's a lot of trust, but I know. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think plus one, everything Cody said, I, I think, one thing that I think is really interesting, right, is like if you're running a remote company, a lot of the advice that you get is like, hey, you have to be really thoughtful about remote. You have to be really thoughtful about how you work together. You have to be really thoughtful about how you like collaborate together. I think the point is often missed is that I think if you're actually doing it in person now, you have to do the same, right? Like the option for remote yeah. work now exists. So if I'm going to a place and you're not thoughtful about my in-person experience, then why the hell am I here, right? Like frankly, I could just be right. working from home. Right. So I think yeah. I think that, that the, you know, the, the cat's out of the box, right? Like the whole notion of like 10 years ago, like, oh, that doesn't work. It's, it's BS. Like you can naturally very much do it. Right. So I think whether you're remote or whether you're in person, just being really thoughtful about it and offering like a really amazing experience for your employees like is almost a must. And anyone that's kind of like in the middle and it's not really committed halfway like, or it's not really committed all the way to either experience. I think it's going to be the ones that are really going to like like, you know, they're going to hit a wall with recruiting. They're going to hit a wall with retention. Because, I mean, again, yeah. I'm remotely and I feel like, hey, I need to be in person. Or if I'm in person, I need to be remotely. Like this whole transition of employees finding what they like is happening, right? So you better be be like sure you're offering like a first-class experience in either. But again, just I think being thoughtful about both is super important. The, the one question I still have, though, regarding remote, I think I think a lot of folks have, have shown here's how you can be productive uh, remotely the one thing that i think is still kind of like uh, at least i have I've yet to see like a very very strong argument is like here's how you build a strong culture remotely um that one mm. i think is harder uh i've seen some folks trying to do like on-sites and things like that but uh i just i just think it's a lot harder um um but again that's that's our own personal bias sure and kind of on that same thread, I mean, kind of looping back to um, when you all introduced each other, like, how did you end up working together? I mean, you, you both come from, I think, very strong uh, backgrounds uh, um, and, um, you know, serendipitously met. I mean, what was what was sort of the genesis behind you all deciding to work together? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. So we uh, so we met at a program even before we started MIT. It was called Interface. Uh, it was a program run by the Office of Minority Education at MIT. Uh, you know, the whole idea is like, hey, you know, all the people from MIT are coming from like really, really amazing like private schools. You guys are coming from like, you no know, first thing, like first generation, low income, like minority, like probably like a not that great of a public high school. Let's kind of get you ramped up uh, to like be go to like the best in class like uh, school like that, that is MIT. Uh, it was an amazing program and uh, it was like an awesome experience. Uh, and the funny thing is that's where I met Cody. That's where I met a lot of my good friends. That's also where I met my wife, actually. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a good program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, Will's like the the endorsement or like poster child of that program. But yeah, I should, I should yeah. write them a letter or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got make business partner, meet your wife. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good endorsement. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, but it, it's kind of crazy. That was like you know, I guess close to fifth. Well, fourteen years ago now, we're coming 14. up on yeah, yeah. we're coming up on our ten year anniversary. So like. Yeah, we met we met back then and then both started out doing computer science and, and things like that. We were friends kind of all throughout like undergrad. And then like our paths kind of just kept like crossing. So Will did his PhD out in Chicago at Northwestern. I worked in Chicago for a little bit at Jump Trading. Um, and then, you know, we basically did things in reverse. Then I like like decided to go back and do my PhD at Stanford. Then I was, uh, then Will finished up his PhD and moved out to the Bay Area. And Will asked the one, like, you know, ex the question you should never ask a PhD student, which is like, when are you going to, when are you going to finish? And, and what are what do you want to do next? And, you know, like <laughs> immediate existential crisis of like, oh, do I want to go the academic route? Do I want to work in industry? Do I want to like go and start like something uh, in like the assistance space? And like, Will was like, I was like, no, nah, like you should. Like no, start a company. Like this is the right call. Like yeah. this is, uh, sounds like a good idea. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, hey, let's keep talking. Uh, you know, I was about to start my job. Like, and Cody was like, still so you're out from graduating, so it was like it's super early conversation. But sure enough, you know, that progressed like slowly over time. I think year year later or so, we uh, uh, yeah, we were, you know, like I quit my job. Cody's graduating. We started the company. I think Cody defend yeah, Cody defended his thesis on a Friday. We started the company on a Monday. So it was oh, a, oh, wow. It yeah, was a, yeah. Yeah. Well, Cody got the whole weekend, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is more than, like, most of my time during the PhD. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, it was actually kind of funny because we were both, like, experiencing or seeing the same problem, but from, like, two different ends, you know? Like, hmm. um, like ultimately, the kind of big thing that's, like, happened is, I think, you know, and, like, the the, the title of this, this um talk is like you know just unstructured data um has exploded as like we have like a tremendous amount of content and i was able to see that like firsthand at places like pinterest and and mm. facebook meta and things like that uh, and just see how like all this content was driving so much like business value um but to actually unlock that value you needed a whole set of kind of bespoke systems and tools and things like that that uh, you know, only you can only see at these kind of leading companies. And then Will was at the like other side of it, you know, again seeing a tremendous amount of content at eBay. But yeah, yeah, and, and you know what's interesting there is to Cody's point, right? I think if you're like a you know like when you're like in the fangs, right? There is like enough of a playbook and there is enough resources that there is something even if it's kind of like stitched together. Uh, but oftentimes, like what I you know what I saw at eBay is like it was really interesting, right? It was it was simultaneously like we were we were kind of ignoring unstructured data, even though it was becoming more and more important part of the user experience. Uh, uh, and yet we were analyzing all this other structured data to death, right? And that, that's, mm. that's, kind of, that's kind of the paradigm that didn't make sense to me, right? Like we, we, we look, we care about like, like, like half a percentage changes and all these metrics will mean a tremendous amount of things for the business. And yet, like, you know, like our, our experience was just increasingly like, like, based on images it was increasingly based on like the unstructured content right the titles and and yet like that was really 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 challenging for us within the context of a data team to like analyze um it, frankly it was you know it was it was tough both from the standpoint of like what it took but also from the standpoint of just like the, the infrastructure what was available to us um and so the, you know that's that's that i don't know that's that that was a lot of like the light bulb moment for me you know i mean frank quite frankly that's why that's where, like, you know, we started the company because I was like, look, this is a tool. If I had, I would have used, right? So, like, this, there's a need for this, right? Like, this doesn't exist now. But I think our strong conviction when we started this and, like, in five years, this is going to be a no-brainer. People are going to look back and be, wow, I can't believe we were doing all that and not looking at unstructured data. I, I have a question about, about unstructured data, which is right now a lot of the techniques with unstructured data focus actually on turning it either into semi-structured or structured data. So for example, if you go to Google Cloud Platform and you look at their vision API, you can pass in images and then they will pass you back a JSON object with some different you know, key values and such and says it looks like a dog or it looks like a cat and a dog or something like this. Are, is that going to continue to be the approach or are we going to evolve away from that intermediate semi-structured or structured step? Yeah, that's a super good question, Matt. Um, I, I think that 
we're going to see kind of a super set of ways to interact with unstructured data kind of going forward. So I think there is um, value in having some like structure, especially in a repeatable kind of way over like your data um, and being able to have kind of control and consistency with that structure. Um, to fit into like existing kind of data pipelines and workflows that people already have and systems that they already have. Um, but I also think that there's additionally new ways that we can interact with unstructured like data and content that we couldn't do before in terms of like multimodal search, like going from text to being able to search for like an image or a video. Um, also similarity search and things like that, where you don't have like, I guess in a sense, there are these kind of, you might be able to do something like this in like structured data, but like it really kind of comes into its own when you think about unstructured data and being able to do those type of, uh, you know, other forms of queries beyond just kind of traditional structured queries, like, like image-based queries or similarity-based queries or like multimodal-based queries. So I think we're gonna see um, a variety of ways to work with um, unstructured data and content kind of going forward. But um, one thing that I think um, ha like hasn't been explored yet is like, you, you mentioned like the Google Vision API and things like that. Um, I actually kind of like in data systems, there's this notion of like, you know, transactional databases and analytical databases in a sense, right? Where transaction is like, you know, very small, like, kind of operations only touch like a few rows and it's supposed to be very low latency and and, and very fast uh, for a bunch of transactions. And then you have analytical workloads, which are going to be touching a larger portion of the data, uh, maybe a little bit less latency sensitive. I think we'll have kind of a similar thing in like working with um, kind of unstructured data and AI, where I think a lot of these like vision APIs are more like transactional workloads. It's like, hey, show me one image at a time and then give me like, some data about that image um, and I think fits into the transactional thing, but I think we're missing kind of more of this like analytical piece where we want to look at like a large collection of unstructured data and content. Like right now we really don't have the tools to kind of do anything um, with like large amounts of unstructured like data or content. Well, we, we didn't have the tools. Well, we didn't, yeah. We yeah. have coacted now, but anyway, that's really yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, But, uh, but uh, no, I mean, I mean, plus, plus one, everything Cody's saying, I think I think if you take a step back, like a lot of what people are doing when instruct data boils down into kind of like two very broad categories. One is like that of intelligent search. Again, to Cody's point, like maybe you have an image, maybe you have text, uh, maybe you have a stateful search, right? It's kind of like the whole notion of like chat GPT, even when, when folks are just searching for, for things using it, right? Uh, and then on the other side, you have uh, the analytical side of things, which is uh, you have 10 million, 100 million images, right? And you want to say, hey, like, can you give me like how many of this type of object are in it, right? Like I have, um, you know, I have a bunch of, say, like images of like Star Wars, right? And like, hey, like how many baby Yoda images do I have in that, right? Like how many images have been uploaded in the past hours? These kind of analytical queries. I think it's like a is 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 a point that's often missed, but it's the bread and butter of what a lot of people do in data, right? Uh, so so and and uh, and to Cody's point, like a lot of these solutions don't address that very well. Like if you have the computer vision, you know, Google's computer vision API, Chat GPT, sorry GPT four that just came out, and you give it an image, it gives you an amazing description, yeah. right? Uh, but like that becomes prohibitively like expensive, both in time and and dollar amount, when you have, like I say a billion images, right? Uh, so how do you yeah. deal with that? And I think, and I think that the, the you know it's interesting because that point is often missed. Um, uh, but yet, is it's a very very like useful uh, use case. It's just like people don't really have the tools to do that right now. Uh, so it feels a little bit more like, well, you know, we don't do it because we don't think we can, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you know, that Cody's point, like, yeah, there's, it's it's just really an underserved part of it. Um, and for that view of the world, to go back to your, your original point, right? I think I think given unstructured data, some form of structure uh, does uh, really facilitate it, right? If the lingua franca of data so far has been SQL for like how many decades, right? If you could have some notion of structure around your structured data, then it allows you to do SQL queries on it. Then all of a sudden, that becomes extremely mm -hmm. powerful for the end user. I mean, sort of an interesting anecdote. I mean, I've been flying internationally quite a bit recently, and. Um, the, even the notion of a passport is, is sort of, it feels antiquated because all I need to do is just put my face in front of a, a camera now. And it's like, that's it? Okay. Um, I have global uh, uh, global entry. So a few weeks ago, I got back to the US and 
literally went through um, immigration in like uh, four seconds. Yeah. I mean, think about that. That's kind of nuts, right? Cause it, it, the, the, the amount of lookup that it has to do in, to, to assess that, I think it's like pretty, pretty insane. I get to France this morning and it's like, they didn't even bother. There's like stamp a passport, get out of here. Um, didn't even look at anything. So because I already did the image uh, check-in when I uh, had boarded. So, Joe, in all, in all fairness, you're also world famous now. So, yeah, true. Yes. Why are you in the line with everyone else? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, it, but, but, but it's interesting because I was just thinking about the amount of processing, you know, that has gone behind the scenes to, to infer that I'm, you know, that, that person, yeah. you know, if I wear some goofy glasses, it's like it still works. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, Maya yeah, has I a question. Could... Oh, oh, Song, what are you saying? Oh, no, I, I was just going to say that's actually a great point, um, Joe, about just like the amount of processing that you have to deal, because I think this is one thing that people actually kind of miss with like, why is it so difficult to work with unstructured data in yeah. comparison to like kind of more structured tabular data? Like, <clears throat> as an example, imagine we had 10 million rows of tabular data, like that's going to be about like 40 megabytes. And like for kind of like, uh, you know, an analogy here, like let's imagine that that kind of equates to like Lake Tahoe, you know, we're in the mentality of like data lakes. Lake Tahoe is like square, like- uh, It's like 400 square kilometers? Something? Yeah, it's about 400 square kilometers, like surface area of Lake Tahoe. If we think about textual data, um, like if we had 10 million documents, like from Wikipedia, mm. I think that's roughly 40 gigabytes of data. So that's three orders of magnitude larger than like the tabular data for the same number of records. And if you were to kind of like go with this analogy, that's kind of equivalent to data Caspian Sea. We looked, yeah. we looked it up. It was like you go from like, oh, wow, you guys actually did this. That's pretty cool. In the world, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We, we, yeah, we looked up like because it's <laughs> like it, it, it kind of makes it like, like make sense of just like how big and different the scale is. Like, yeah, it's like Caspian Sea, which I think is around like 400,000 square kilometers of surface area. And then when you think about images, you know, if you have 10 million images, like the open images data set, that's about 20 terabytes of data. Um, that's another three order, orders of magnitude on top of that. And that's like equivalent to the Pacific Ocean, which is like roughly like 168 million square kilometers of surface area. So like, like right now we have tools that work for like data lakes, you know, which is kind of like, but, but, but like thinking about the scale of something that's on like the Pacific Ocean, right? Like the same tools and vehicles that work for a lake um, aren't going to necessarily get you across like the, the, the uh, mm. Pacific Ocean. Yeah, you, you go from something that like it's trivial to hold a memory to something you can barely hold a memory to something that it doesn't even make sense to work outside of like an object store in the cloud, right? And, and yeah. these these challenges I think are often underappreciated once you start to tackle it. So even within unstructured data, there are these nuances and these idiosyncrasies in, in each of the types of modalities that I think are often missed. Uh, and I think that's going going back to your point about the different systems. I think you really have to have a best in class solution for each of them, right? Even within video, mm. right? Like people sometimes miss that like there are very different forms of video. There's like short form, like TikTok, 15 second videos. And then there's like hour long podcasts, like what we're doing right now, right? And they both have to be processed very, very differently. That's really interesting. Because it, it kind of makes you think about what, what a, a, sort of the, uh, the objective functions that are yet to be, um, I guess, used. But as more and more use cases for unstructured data come into play, it's kind of like, what else could we really do with uh um, you know, this type of data that we haven't thought of yet. I think it's interesting. Generative AI, I think is going to kind of blow the, you know, well, could blow the lid off a lot of things, but I think the kind of letting people's imaginations run wild with, um, you know, the possibilities of unstructured data is, this can be very fascinating to see. Um, like on my, on my plane right over, somebody was just talking about, a. Uh, chat gpt and it was just a couple just talking about it you know how it's going to be an office uh, pretty soon they're very excited about this and it's like that's kind of cool like it's just it's sort of when the internet uh, became popular everyone started talking about it and it feels like a ai sort of is having that moment right now and um you know so it's uh, interesting but on that note maya actually has a question here um she says uh is there a concern that generative ai may inadvertently normalize unstructured data and thus accidentally remove uh, slash gloss over outliers uh, that are signals in the noise any thoughts on that? Oh, this is a, this is a great question. Um, thinking about it, I'm trying to like process kind of everything. So normalizing unstructured data thus. Um, so 
So I th think um, there's definitely a lot of concerns when we think about generative AI. Um, I think that there is this notion that will normalize unstructured data uh, in the sense that being able to generate kind of unstructured data in the form of text, images, videos, all this stuff will become, you know, very commonplace and it will become, uh, we'll just generate a massive amount of this data and um, folks will get so used to like the notion of like working with unstructured like data or generating unstructured data in the same way that we can generate you know, traditional structured data, and we don't even think about it. You know, in the big data movement, it's like this data, structured data is everywhere. Like, literally, um, uh, it's just the, the, like, you know, every single time you take an Uber ride and things like that, you're going to be generating structured data. Um, and in comparison, like, structured data to unstructured data, structure has, like, some, structured data has some, like, notion or, like, some intention around what each one of the values are. You know, it's like supposed to be like, hey, this is this column is like the rating that you gave that ride. You know, if we're thinking about Uber or something like that and there's some kind of intention and things like that. Um, and there's like maybe less uh, outliers in a sense, whereas like unstructured data, um, it's unstructured for a reason. You don't have that kind of schema or anything like that. So like the inputs that you could get or and like um, into the system and that data that's captured, um, you know, can be like. Uh, highly variable, you know, I think this is where we see kind of the long tail, like trying to tame the long tail and content uh, and just like uh, data that we generate uh, overall. So if I'm interpreting this question correctly, I, I, I think I agree with the notion that, um, you know, structured data, we have some problem with like outliers or issues and like the data, you know, like null values and like values that we don't expect. I think that gets exacerbated when we think about unstructured data just because of like the universe of inputs that we could have and like data that could be like kind of generated there where um, the failure cases or the failure modes are like very, very numerous kind of coming back to this long tail. So um, I think that that's like a, a, a really interesting problem. And I've seen this even like kind of firsthand with just like simple kind of classifier, classifier definitions and things like that, you know, for, for example, um, was just trying to say like, hey, are images bowling or not bowling? And mm. um, you would imagine that that should be like a simple question, you know, it should be like either zero or one, it's bowling or not bowling. Um, but there's a lot of edge cases that like, if you think about kind of AI that you might not anticipate, you know, so one was, um, photos of an exercise studio when I was doing this kind of process of active learning were, were shown to be very uncertain by the model because they would have a wood floor and giant colorful exercise um, balls in the background, which like when you look at it from a machine's perspective, I could see how it would get confused that this is actually like a bowling alley um, and things like that. Uh, but like as a human being, I would never have thought to even include an example of an exercise studio with like exercise balls in the background as like a kind of training example for this bowling classifier for anything that I'm doing there. That's maybe an innocuous example, but you can get all sorts of um, kind of more problematic things when you think about trust and safety stuff, when you think about mm. kind of like generative AI being kind of um, put into a bunch of different domains, like even Microsoft Office, you know, for example, where you have to think about sensitive information and things <clears> like that being linked as you connect it to enterprise data sources. But uh, hopefully that, that's like my take on the on the question and maybe some context around it, but I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think plus one what Cody said. I think just to give like an example, right, is like, it, like, so, so with traditional, like when data is being generated, like when structured data in particular, right? Like you're effectively rate limited by like humans, right? Some sort of human interaction or, or humans doing something, right? If you're no longer rate limited by that and you can generate a lot of content, right? Specifically, you're going to be asking to generate curated content. Then there's, you know, when it was just humans, there's kind of like these broad notion of concepts with these very long tails, right? If you're now creating a lot of content around maybe not the tails, but just like the meaty part of the curve of the things you care about, uh, you might have a representation of, 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 of maybe what is not human-based data. So, I mean, to give you an example, going back mm -hmm. to the trust and safety case, right? Let's say you have like a content, let's say you have a platform of user-generated content, and let's say you now start just making it to pretend you have users, right? 
Well, you might be missing now the part that like users, like there are some non-trivial fraction of users that like to patrol posts, right? Or like to create new memes or like to perhaps upload gore because I don't know, for, for whatever reason, that's something that you have to worry about in user-generated content. But but it's the reality, right? Um, and uh, I think, yeah, I think to to, to go back to, to, to Cody's point, right, it's just, uh, I think just being being thoughtful around like, like, hey, like, you know, is, is what is being generated representative of what humans will generate, right? And if it's not, at least making somewhat of a distinction. Yeah, what was it that it came out? Was it Glaze or something like that that allowed you to um, sort of trick? Uh, um, was it, it, was, it was a way of like um, sort of obfuscating the data, but it was something that humans wouldn't be able to detect. So if you threw in this thing, and I'm totally butchering it probably, but it would... Um, it, into an image like you know it wouldn't be able to be copyrighted for example or something like that or it would be a it basically watermark it in such a way that um you know it could pass through a yeah it would spoof the um the the learning algorithm somehow um, i'll have to look this up there but yeah I'm curious if they get you know, I imagine you'll see more of this kind of stuff really it's sort of like cloaking whatever uh if you don't want the, your, your stuff to be picked up either by an algorithm, you can you find a way just to throw some noise in there so it doesn't get picked up. So, yeah. When, when ChatGPT came out, the first thing I thought of was, oh, geez, we're going to have basically the equivalent of like SEO happening with uh, these, these chatbots. Um, yeah. People are just going to be throwing out all kinds of crazy stuff. And this is, I mean, yeah, I can tell you up, that's definitely so. happening, right? You guys are probably oh, yeah. very well aware of this. I mean, people are definitely. You should buy my new TikTok course on how to become a millionaire on ChatGPT. Yeah. I remember in the, in the uh, GPT paper, the original one from 2020, they, it actually had an instance too where the, uh, the test data and the training data got contaminated with oh, each yeah. other. So, yeah. yeah. Happens. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, this is like, I, I think you touched on so many different kind of like problems or like areas there, like uh, uh, Joe uh, to like break it down. Like one, I think there's this like, yeah, there's like one is just the sheer skew of data, you know? And I think this is like one thing that uh, can happen where people can easily like flood, you know, like bad content, misleading misinformation and things like that. Um, also like you can just, skew just like general populations like the people that are already talking a lot can now talk more and like will dominate the airways even more than like kind of other folks potentially but um the the data piece actually the data going into to um training these models and stuff like that is also like a really i think underappreciated part of like ai in general like you know open ai like they're really really smart as like you know an entire team in an organization but even they messed up like uh, kind of their sets at that scale, you know, when they're scraping the entire web, like they might have some hidden test set, but that test sets like exposed somewhere on the web and like even trying to understand, you know, what data you're training on um, and what data is being used can be like hard to understand at that scale again, because you don't have like any easy way of like, looking at like massive volumes of this data and like a single go or even understanding like again this like ocean of data uh, ocean of unstructured data that's out there um and and even they also had like issues back in the 2020 paper of like even figuring out the distribution of like how they mix in like wikipedia data with like uh the common crawl data from the internet to make sure that they have like they have like high quality information from like wikipedia versus like you know, plentiful but low quality information from the internet. And then of course, like dealing with bias and stuff like that, that you would have on the internet and trying to like, you know, um, uh, moderate, like kind of manage that so that it doesn't get kind of crystallized and amplified in like this ML model and then propagate it kind of over the web. Like, you know, back in the day, I always think of like Microsoft Tay. I'm not sure if, um, Oh, yeah. oh so I remember Tay, that was hilarious. Yeah. Under 24, under 24. Was that one of the first examples of that? Because since then, we've just kind of come to expect it, right? I mean, where you constantly have to put safeguards <laughs> um, in to protect from this kind of behavior. <laughs> well, I think that scared the living daylights out of a lot of companies and people. It's like, wow, this thing could be spoofed by Twitter. I mean, Twitter is a great, wholesome, family-oriented place. So I, 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 you know, I was shocked when that happened. Um you know, on the, inter like the internet itself you know, is it's a very, like shit. <laughs> yeah, it's a great place. The internet's a great place. Totally harmless content out there. I mean, I don't know what could go wrong. Um, 
Yeah, it, it was crazy. But I think you saw that with what was it, Sydney as well. Some some weird variant of that, uh, which was the uh, Microsoft's thing when it went on Bing. Um, suddenly it was yeah. like and Galactica, kind of a, Facebook Galactica, or Meta Galactica that came out recently had the same problem essentially. Is that right? Yeah. They, they yeah. Hold it within a day, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's just like such a massive problem over like even OpenAI, right? Like part of the one of the big things that they did with like ChatGPT is they got much better at kind of you know, holding it back and putting safeguards in place so that like you don't have like, you know, uh, sensitive content stuff like that. And it's quite interesting to see like sometimes those safeguards are like so strong that like the, the, the AI just has to bow out of like anything that's even near like a topic that might be like somewhat problematic or could uh, get into the space, like talking about religion or gender or sexual orientation, like the, these models just give up. They're like, okay, they like have like a hard rule to prevent it from going down that that track because um yeah it can be so problematic oh geez yeah here's another scenario going back to what we were just discussing so one can imagine a world where maybe 90 percent of the content on the internet is machine generated i mean it's not hard to think of this happening looking at just the volumes of, of yeah. uh, generative ai that's just what it's pumping out so are, are, do we have to worry about a scenario where the internet just becomes one giant like generative ai feedback <laughs> loop on youtube or something there's, a, there's an onion news uh, uh, uh i think there's like a one of those fake tech talks exactly on this where it's like oh right now we have bots then later on we'll have bots generating content and at some point it's just bots chatting with each other we're completely out of the equation like everyone claps. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could make actually a, a strange argument because uh, I, I do that once in a while um, about how uh, I mean SEO in some ways is, is sort of already yeah. you've already done that right. I mean you've already kind of fit content to fit an algorithm. It's just you, you know it, it was human generated, but uh, you know now it's just um, now that's automated. So I mean it was funny. I was walking around an office here in Paris today, and somebody was actually using ChatGPT. And was like reading the results and then typing it into something else. Uh, yeah. It was an interesting work. Like I stood there for like ten it, minutes. Typing it. <laughs> like, typing it. Yeah, typing I was. It. I was like, "What are you? You know that you can. There's other ways to do this. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it, was, it was really fascinating because people are just using it in their workflow. And I think they're just trying to cherry picking whatever answer they found. And then, uh, but um, yeah. And as Scott Taylor says, uh, "Yeah, if you uh, put garbage in, you might get garbage out." Yeah, I mean, it's strange. Um, does happen. Uh, Mike Nash actually has a, uh, a kind of a question that's a bit more on track here. Um, uh, how important is compute and storage cost for unlocking value from unstructured data? Uh, will file optimization be uh, key to the future of unstructured data management? Oh, this is a super great question. Yeah. This is this is a, yeah, this is a super good question. I, I, oftentimes, this also gets like honestly kind of ignored. Uh, again, going back mm -hmm. to the analogy of like of like four megabytes versus forty gigabytes versus twenty terabytes, right? Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah, no! No, no, go, go, go for it. This is a good question. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so ultimately, I think that we need to kind of re like think many different parts of the stack. I think storage is like one really important piece of it. You know, as just like a simple example, when you think about like working with a large amount of images, or like the starting point for a lot of companies is that they have like their images or multimedia files stored on an object store like S3 as a bunch of like PNG or JPEG files, right? Um, but having like a bunch of images just stored on kind of a distributed object store file system is like really like poor from like a traversal kind of like search perspective, you know? And like from kind of my experience in like MLPerf and, and, and you know, Dawnbench, like the first thing that people do to be able to like kind of optimize or get um, kind of better performance out of like their ML systems to like kind of train or even process this data is that they take kind of these raw files that are scattered across network storage and they actually just kind of compile them together into some type of binary format, whether that be like something like um, LMDB or HDF5 or Parquet files and things like that. Because reading like one file from like uh, you know, like one, it compresses the size or reduce the size and it'll also prevent you from just having to make all these reads out to the network. And you can instead like kind of like have a big bulk file that you process is huge for being at the like orders of magnitude kind of like improvement in performance and to really be able to saturate, um, you know, these accelerators because we have this kind of whole thing that's happening like uh, hardware manufacturers, they see kind of the value of all this unstructured data of AI and being able to process all of this. 
So we have compute that's getting faster and faster and faster. Um, and we actually need the data and the storage layer to actually be able to keep up with the, the speed of these like new accelerators and things like that for us to be able to get the value out of that. So I think uh, storage file optimization is like a, like it, it's not fully sufficient in a sense. Like I think it's a necessary condition. There's other things that we need as well in order to be able to unlock the value from unstructured data. But like file optimization, optimized like data management for unstructured data is like a huge, huge piece of that. Yeah, I mean, just like like practically speaking, right? Like, like you know, if you truly are like to get a lot of the value of unstructured data, you for the most part you kind of go. You're not using. I mean, you can use humans, but it's a very expensive, uh, like very expensive, slow endeavor, right? So you're generally using AI, and you know, in the context of using AI, you, you very quickly find that the larger these file sizes and the more that they are of them. Like what Cody was saying, like you become IO limited super fast. Like you end up having like, oh, why is my GPU utilization like 10%? And it was like, because you're reading from S3 the whole time, right? You just read all these small little files, right? And, and again, you can do these tricks and you can do all this, but uh, but but yeah, exactly the point. Like there's very, very little thought that gets put into it uh, a lot of times. Uh, and you know, you you as a researcher end up paying uh, the, the the price down down downstream, right? But, so yeah, so just like just better playbooks for really storing this data and also accessing it are, are, are like are like are in, are incredibly important to this piece of getting value out of unstructured data. Yeah, again, like uh, uh, yeah, it's just it's you you need a lot more than that, but this is like a key pain point as you go to these like giant files uh, or or either, either either giant files or or large volumes of data or or a lot of small files that ultimately add up to a lot of data, right? Um, yeah, and one bigger point that this ties into is that there's like a lot of steps and a lot of this like, yeah. you know, like like doing Don Bench and MLperf, I got to basically kind of see high performance deep learning. And there's a lot of this kind of like um, just knowledge out here, like little pieces of knowledge and little yeah. kind of components of the stack that matter a lot in order for like to be able to actually like process this data super efficiently. Like people spend, I've seen organizations uh, as we like work with folks where they have to spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in like a month to compute something that like, if you look at like the best results from MLPerf could be done in an hour, you know? And that's like, it, it's orders of magnitude different, like in terms of performance and cost, if you are able to do these optimizations um, and be able to get to like, like the best performance, like the best performance for like inference over images, if you look at MLPerf was something like, 300,000 images per second, you know, which is like massive. That's like huge and amazing in terms of just like being able to like churn through this data really, really quickly. Yeah. And I, th I think uh, another point I was going to make too is, uh, is a lot of these problems of having like a lot of data or small files, like become more and more pressing as you go to towards like the, the structure route. Um, so, so, so to give, to give an example, right? Like as you're doing this kind of inference, um, as you're doing this kind of inference, inference pieces, like we have, we have a lot of like really small files. Ah, oh, man, my train of thought like just kind of killed. I'll come uh, back to this, yeah. but like this is like like <laughs> uh, man, sorry, this is just this the analogy I had gave me, but yeah, I'll come back. Sorry. All right, here we go. Happens to the rest of us. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what 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 is the crux? to unlocking the value of unstructured data? What, what, what would you consider to be the hardest thing? Oh, can I, can I uh, this actually relates to this question. I just came back to me, sorry. Yeah. Uh, cool. So, so, well, so again, wanted, want to go back to like the kind of like storage piece, like question that is actually pretty related to this, right? It, if you, you know, I think for a long time, people in this big data space have been in this world of data quantity, right? Like if you have millions of noisy examples, that's fine, traded on all of it, on all of it. And, and that's, Kind of fine when you're doing unstructured data that's just tabular, right? When you go to unstructured data, all of a sudden, like training on all of your noisy data, it is a very expensive endeavor. I think this is what folks like in the AV industry start finding out. Uh, so kind of like, so so if you stay in that world, it's going to become increasingly incredibly expensive to keep operating in this data quality doesn't matter kind of world, right? And we can just get all of it. Um, and but if you're actually really thoughtful about not the quantity of the data but the quality of your data, right? You find that yes, you can get to a certain performance with a lot of with millions of noisy examples, or you can be really tough about the quality. You can have hundreds 
examples like actually end up you end up learning kind of the same behavior like or the ml model ends up learning the same patterns uh if you were just think really carefully about like this data selection piece um mm-hmm. and i think that's something that's often un, un, under underappreciated and i think once you go to structure data you have like sometimes you have no option but to ha- employ some sort of data selection strategy because you, you just can't train on everything uh because of how prohibitively expensive it is and this actually kind of ties into the to the question you just asked joe okay, i'll let you take it yeah. So, so coming back to that, that question, I think, I think it does tie in nicely of like, what is the biggest kind of blocker for people to be un- able to unlock, you know, the value of unstructured data? Um, uh, again, ultimately, I think we're going from like data lakes to data oceans when we think about just the sheer volume that we have with unstructured data, especially if we think about kind of visual content. And as a result of that, it forces us to have to rethink all the systems and tools that we have. Um, however, I think there's a lack of people, I think that there's a lack of like, um, you need to understand kind of both pieces. You need to understand AI and you also need to understand systems in order to be able to create kind of the tools that like work here. Um, and I think that's where a lot of companies kind of mess up when they think about unstructured data or even like, you know, using AI in their teens they like focus on one or the other, you know, you have like, you talk to like a systems person or a databases person, they're just going to be like, uh, and they're just going to be like, you know, just like shove it into some existing tool and system and things like that. And like, it it, it doesn't work smoothly and it requires you to like kind of do a bunch of hacking, you know, as an example of this, um, I remember Microsoft had this project like Raven, Mm -hmm. um, which was to put ML into Microsoft SQL server. The way that they decided to do that is like, yeah, let's take the entire Onyx runtime and just like shove it into Microsoft SQL Server, you know, which is like, yeah, like that you get, I guess you kind of put ML and databases together, but it's not really an elegant kind of cohesive solution. You just kind of like duct taped AI to a database, which like <laughs> is not going to be the most elegant or best way to unlock the data. And then on the flip side, when you think about like, I think like ML people and like AI folks, they might not, uh, they'll miss some of these systems components and like, how do you actually think about the scale or cost of these things? And how do you make like the data piece of it repeatable and like um, kind of understand the broader like atmosphere of it. And, uh, and I see a lot of organizations, they like hire like a few ML people and they like kind of aren't setting them up for success. They're like, hey, they like, basically have like this massive heroic task of like trying to like train or build a model over all this unstructured data, but it's so painfully slow for them to like even iterate or process or do any of this because they don't have the basic infrastructure in place that becomes Mm -hmm. kind of just like a like ridiculous like challenge that they can't overcome. And I see companies, they do this and then they like end up basically failing, you know, they build like some, they try to build some prototype, they fail at it, and then they kind of give up. They waste time, they waste money um, in doing that. Yeah, and I think I'll just add a, a few points to that. I mean, plus one, everything Cody said, and I think what's really interesting is like the ML and the AI folks a lot of times don't really necessarily talk to or interact all that much. I think I think it's very far and few, like the, the Venn diagram intersection of the two. And I think on the ML side, it often gets underappreciated. Like uh, when you go to like large data sizes, just how hard it is to just even just put move data from point A to point B, right? If you're talking about like, again, like a toy data set that you have on your laptop, that's like, again, like 20 gigs, like, you know, it's fine. But if you're talking about like 20 terabytes, all of a sudden, like that is like a non-trivial challenge, right? It's under under uh, underappreciated by the folks that are just purely doing ML. And I think from the from the data system side, like it, sometimes it's underappreciated the nuances of, of that, that ML brings, right? Like for example, say you are to create some sort of like, column that's like a structured data column based on your own structured data right like is, is that an ephemeral column right is that is that like some temporary view that uh, that you create on demand do you, do you persist that right all these questions now come up uh that actually heavily interact with the ai piece right because is that is that a model that's constantly changing online based on say demand because it's a transactional kind of a operation right or is this something that like hey no that's like a historic model that's never going to change right uh, which which is probably not a good idea, but but uh, but but it does open up a lot of these like kind of worms and questions that I think uh, because the people are ne- are oftentimes not in the same room uh, or or you know maybe in the same room and maybe speak a different language or had different training. There's just these questions kind of get missed, but it's, they're incredibly important to doing unstructured data plus like AI.
they're making sense of the whole equation. So yeah, I, I think plus one, everything go to said. I think I think the system side of things can be understated enough. Like as you go more and more in structured data. I mean, and frankly speaking, like I feel, I feel like a lot of these questions have kind of been punted uh, because a lot of the focus on AI so mm-hmm. far has been on, on on NLP. And when you're within the realm right. of NLP, it's, it's stuff that you can still do on your laptop, right? You haven't gotten like. But the second you hit images and video and like the people that have had to work with that, like you very quickly understand that like, this is just like it requires a different scale of tools and requires a different scale of like of thoughtfulness, right? Yeah, and closing it out, like you know, like coming back to like the social media like uh title on LinkedIn Joe of like you know, content is like the new king, you know, like all this unstructured content is like massive and we see generative AI making the ability to create content easier, faster, and things like that. But like AI is the queen in the sense that is that key piece to being able to actually unlock that value. So like the, 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 like bringing, you know, data content and AI together in a cohesive relationship that uh, is like the key piece to actually being able to, to get that value. Well, it sounds like this expertise, like the systems level expertise plus process level expertise. And by process level, I mean like just understanding how do I pre-filter my data? How do I cut down data sets? How do I reject noise before I even start training? It sounds like that kind of expertise is going to become or already is a key bottleneck in the development of AI. How do we how do we train in a new generation of like AI practitioners to get beyond their laptops to have that systems level and process level thinking? Or is it a yeah. person that does that at all? <laughs> Maybe <Yeah>. GPT-4 <laughs> is going to do it for us. <laughs> yeah. So super, super great question, Matt and, and Joe. I think um, ultimately the way that, I, like actually to Joe's point, I think that, um, I think for most, inter- like most enterprises, most companies, like expecting them to be able to build out their entire like the ml team the like data team and the systems team to do this is just like almost too big of an ask like for them right like already it's like really expensive to build out like an ml team to do all this other stuff is really really hard um and you know i've seen that firsthand i've seen kind of like you you know the the infrastructure and teams that are at places like meta and pinterest and stuff like that so I think that like, and this is like, again, the whole reason that we create a coactive is to actually like create the tools, create the infrastructure to bridge that gap so that you can work with like your unstructured data. And it feels as though it's as easy to work with unstructured data as it is to, to work with structured and semi-structured data. And we can fit into the existing like pipelines and workflows. So like many organizations like don't need to like worry about that and think and think about it because I think that it is really, really hard to get this right. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to Matt's point, you know, like we are doing stuff. I think that there is like changes that are happening in curriculum and things like that. You know, we're heavily involved in this whole new movement around data centric AI, which I think mm-hmm. is, um, you know, a step in the right direction in terms of like not just thinking about AI in terms of models, but actually thinking about the data that goes into those models yeah. And then, you know, like from my PhD and like from the ML ops community and things like that, I was a part of like ML systems and like the ML systems community getting created, like my advisor at at Stanford, Matei Zaharia and Peter Bayless, they created like the first conference on, on ML systems. So I think now we have like, like we have two things being joined together. It's like data and AI and systems and like AI. Ultimately, what I think we need is like kind of all three of those pieces. And I think that's where the magic Mm -hmm. really happens. But that only ends up happening in a few places, you know, like when you think about like the step functions and AI or like data, it was like you think about AlexNet back in like the day on ImageNet. It was that Mm -hmm. trifecta of super large data set at the time of ImageNet coming out. Plus, like deep learning in terms of AI, and then they just did like a like a ton of GPU hacking to be able to train mm-hmm. like the model on that large scale of data. And then fast forward to now, when you think about OpenAI, like OpenAI is like another like like the the AI stuff that they did is like interesting, you know, it, it, like in a sense, but it's like more of the same. It's actually yeah. what I think is like amazing what OpenAI did was just the scale that they were able to process things at, which is really like a systems like problem. And like also being able to like kind of filter the data correctly to prevent, you know, ChatGPT yeah. from becoming the next Microsoft tag. So 
those places, like when I think about like reflecting on on like time, like the time and kind of the inflection points and like unstructured data and AI in general, it's really when you get that trifecta of mm. uh, like AI data and systems together. But there's only been a few organizations and places where that can happen. So I think realistically expecting all companies to get to that point is like kind of hard because they are very deep in different disciplines. Um, so I think the tooling and the infrastructure, I mean, there's a lot of people that are trying to do, I think the space is exploding right now. Um, it needs to probably settle out a little bit in terms of like kind of tools, but I think we'll get into a place where like there are best practices and standards in the same way that there's like standards for like relational databases, you know? Mm. It definitely feels like that. I mean, I've, I've been, you mentioned relational databases. It's funny. I, I, I've been uh, writing a new book on uh, data modeling and, and have been going back through the, uh, the corpus of, of database history, a uh, really fascinating topic, but Right now, it, it feels like the last ten years is really where databases were back in the um, in the '60s and, and early '70s, where there were actually many forks it, it could have gone yeah. um, hierarchical databases, relational databases, and so forth. Like it wasn't really well. The big vendors just kind of decided where that would go. Actually, um, kind of like today um, in some ways. Um, so, uh, but it, it, yeah, because I mean, when because yeah, again, in the original um, GPT paper, GPT three paper, it's like when I was looking through, it, I was like, oh, they're just using deep learning for this stuff. That's that's yeah. Same stuff that was used in the image that way back in the day. And, and so, you know, but as you say, it's just a, a scale, right? And so it, it's very curious. What was also curious about GPT-4 was it, it wasn't, they didn't scale it out as far as I could tell. Maybe they didn't, they didn't say it, but, you know, it was more just using like human reinforcement in, in, in the loop and, um, and including uh, kind of more of a multimedia mix, but um, which is pretty cool to see. I mean, the, the example they had of like an iPhone with a VGA um, cable strapped to it was a, pretty hilarious because it was able to tell what it was. But it really feels yeah. like we're that that kind of um, a very similar situation of databases. And I, I'm glad you brought that up, Cody. Because it's it, um, you know we, it feels like things are just getting started. I guess is what I'm getting to at. Uh, you know, and and, it, um, and who knows what the next uh, you know five ten years. But I think you guys are definitely onto something. Like I think very um, uh, born from experience to it. It's not like you could have just made up a startup like oh we're going to go tackle that problem because that seems really fun to do. It would have required <laughs> like a very unique insight that you would only have gotten um, if you're paying very close attention to the nuance. So. I think you also have to really love nerding out about this kind of stuff because it, it's deep. It goes, it goes very deep in both oh. the AI and the sense direction. So, so, so yeah. yeah, I mean, luckily we're both like nerds are hard and we love this stuff. So this works out pretty well. <laughs> and, and, I mean, and old friends too. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. You guys kind of yeah, know I how each other work and vibe off yeah. that. Yeah. That's really cool. The awesome. No, we're coming right up now. It's nuts, What's... though. I mean, just there's so much money going into generative AI from VCs at the moment. Maybe that will change with the. Oh, SPG yeah. Matt and I are going to announce our new uh, generative AI company. That's uh, right. Actually, after <laughs> show, so, um, <laughs> kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. My, my grandma, she's going to announce hers, too. Um, it's, 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 it's quite the world run right now. Um, you know, in the future, this uh, podcast could all be generative AI. Yeah, you know, we'll it'll be like. Oh, totally. It will be. Exactly. It will be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that's uh what a what a world <laughs> so well awesome um it's good to good to talk with you guys um love to have you back on it uh, again at some point um yeah for people who want to learn more about you and, and what coactive is up to how can they do that yeah so they can visit our website uh coactive.ai or follow us on linkedin at um coactive ai or also on twitter awesome Cool. And I know there are quite a few uh, questions here, and uh, uh, sorry we didn't get to everybody's questions. Um, uh, time flies and you're having fun. Uh, I guess if, if Cody and Will, if you want, you can go back to the questions and answer them in, in a written form or, or not, whatever you're into. Um, so, yeah, there were some good ones. Uh, yeah, thanks for everyone for showing up. Uh, next week, we have Jess Haberman. Uh, she was our uh, acquisitions editor at O'Reilly, actually, and I think we're going to talk about... Um, now she's at Anaconda, I think in charge of learning or, or something like that. So, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about education, uh, learning tech, uh, writing books, and uh, all that fun stuff. So if you've ever wanted to write a book uh, for O'Reilly, um, I think Jess uh, is a, maybe a good person to get some advice from. Or if you just want to learn about tech, she's a good person to talk to as well. Um, what is it? Pr Matt, uh, Friday, we're going to be in Verbier, Switzerland, doing something. Uh, yes, we are going to be at the Skiers in Data Conference with uh, Chris Stab and uh, Leading Edge IT. So, 
Yeah. Cool. We but what we're doing, are we on a panel or what? I can't remember. What I think we're, anyway, you're on a panel. I, we're we're and, all frozen uh, to this stuff. Yeah. We're, we're going to be talking <laughs> about uh, data modeling and streaming, actually. So we're going to be talking about the problems that this, as we're shifting toward a more like streaming first real time uh, data architecture, how do you think about data modeling? So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. which actually is yeah. something you've been thinking about a lot, Joe. So we, we've had a lot I of I have. I have. But I'll yeah. save my, uh, save yeah. my blurting for uh, the, uh, yeah. the panel or <laughs> exactly. yeah. show. Well, so, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say we've also been thinking about it from our end because I mean structured data is going mm, on. It, yeah. Like yeah. live streaming and video uh, and those kind of interactions are super important. So how do you like do all this stuff? Like, how do you do it in a real time analytics fashion? It's a it's a fun problem. Mm -hmm. Love to chat. Love to chat. So because yeah. one section of the book is definitely gonna cover streaming and machine learning. And oh, awesome. a mix of the two. Yeah. So it's it's about uh you know, how do you model data for uh for ML too? So a lot of the stuff we talked about is actually very, very uh, pertinent, like you know, when you talked about uh, you know quality data, well, like that, it's like yeah, that that's something we should be yeah. thinking about. So it's yeah. um, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, love to chat soon. Um, great having you guys on. Uh, thanks to the audience again. Great questions. Uh, glad everyone liked the show, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, man. Thanks, thanks Matt. Thank you. Thank you.